This is a podcast from the South Ham Project at University College Dublin. South Ham, which is funded by the European Research Council, is a five-year comparative study of the wide range of literary outputs and mediating institutions produced in the Southern Hemisphere and Strait Settlements from 1780 to 1870. This podcast features a lecture from the 2017 South Hem Seminar Series, Methodologies Across Borders. The final lecture in this series was given by James Bellich, White Professor of Imperial and Commonwealth History at the University of Oxford. Professor Bellich's lecture, Connectivity, Globalization and Divergence Over Five Millennia, An Approach to Global History, took place at the UCD Humanities Institute on the 18th of May, 2017. It was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. Professor Bellich was introduced by Dr. William Mulligan from the UCD School of History. Okay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you're uh, very welcome to this lecture in the uh, Methodologies Across Borders series. Uh, it's uh, funded uh, by the uh, European Research Council and supported by the uh, Humanities Institute, and I'm uh, delighted to see such a, a large turnout from such a diverse range of uh, schools across the college here. Um, it's a particular pleasure to welcome uh, Professor James Bellich from the University of Oxford. Uh, I think he started out his career uh, working on the New Zealand wars, uh, the conflicts between the uh, Maoris and uh, European settlers uh, in New Zealand between the 1840s and the 1870s. Uh, and in uh, 1986, he published The New Zealand Wars uh, and the Victorian Interpretation of Racial Conflict. Uh, and this was a, a wonderful combination of uh, military history methodologies uh, and the methodologies of uh, intellectual history, uh, in which he uh, reread uh, basic military concepts such as victory and defeat, uh, such as uh, defence, through uh, uh, the light of what happened uh, in New Zealand between the 1840s uh, and 1870s, and really uh, marks uh, a contribution uh, to the wave of new military history uh, that others of us know so well uh, from the historiography. Uh, on the First World War. So this was a, uh, a very important uh, book about colonial warfare, but also a very important uh, contribution uh, to uh, reviving uh, military history. Uh, well, uh, not content with uh, dealing with uh, 25 years of uh, conflict in uh, New Zealand, uh, Professor Bellich uh, soon turned his attention to uh, wider fields. And in uh, 2009, he wrote uh, another very important and influential book, uh, called uh, Replenishing the Earth, uh, which was a study of the uh, settler colonies in the uh, Anglophone world. Uh, and there, my reading of it is that his key argument was uh, that the uh, distinctive British uh, contribution uh, to uh, global history in the late 18th to the early uh, 20th century uh, was not simply uh, trade or, or the development of networks, uh, but rather it was the uh, process of migration uh, and the establishment of uh, settler colonies, uh, obviously in Australia, New Zealand, uh, Southern Africa and Canada, but also uh, in the United States. And uh, together, uh, this constituted uh, the uh, Anglo world. And uh, in doing so, uh, Professor Bellich made a, an important contribution uh, to debates about the, about the great divergence uh, between Europe and other continents. Uh, and uh, to the uh, debate about the relationship uh, between uh, global and imperial history. Uh, but even uh, 150 years of uh, British imperial history uh, was not uh, sufficient for him, uh, and he's uh, now uh, decided uh, with an exponential uh, growth in terms of uh, time and uh, geographical scale uh, to devote his attention to a mere uh, five millennia of uh, global history. Uh, so without any further ado, because he's only got 45 minutes to uh, cover all of this material, uh, I'll turn the floor over to uh, Professor Balich. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for turning up at the start of term time. I appreciate that. As you know, um, global history is one of the historiographical fads of the moment. And like previous terms, uh, there is a case for it remaining semi-defined, vaguely defined, amorphous. This allows one to keep the church broad uh, and to evade criticism, as previous turns have demonstrated. Uh, there is a problem with it, though, especially for um, those of a 
an antipodean bull-at-the-gate proclivity, and that is that um, at a certain time, new historical trends have to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. They have to demonstrate that they can cast new light on old problems and that they can actually add value to the specialist uh, histories on which they rely. Uh, there is no point in floating grandly above the gritty controversies of history um, and throwing down the occasional sort of Zeus-like thunderbolt um, at the specialists on whom we rely. Um, we have to actually demonstrate that global history can add value. The way I'm going to attempt to do this, and it's by no means the only way, is try to look at my old target, the great divergence of Europe from the rest of the planet, and uh, the origins and nature of globalisation, and bring those two historical problems, both of which are up and running and you know, generating significant literature at this very moment, uh, try to help them cast fresh light on each other. This involves risks of replacing one grand meta-narrative with another. Uh, it involves risks of overriding the particular and the culturally specific. It involves risks of reductionism, um, positivism, rampant empiricism. Uh, my various attempts to alleviate, if not solve, those problems will have to be left to questions. But what I propose to do is uh, try to redefine the concepts of globalisation and divergence uh, and see if they can be salvaged from Eurocentrism and modernity. What's most interesting about globalisation is not its chronologies. Various um, authors argue that globalisation begins in 1492, the 1490s anyway, with Columbus and Da Gama. Others say it's 1560s, I think, when the Spanish reach Manila and the globe is actually encircled uh, by the bullion ships. Others, again, like Kevin O'Rourke, you know, who's a close colleague of mine at Oxford, argues that it's about the 1820s when you get mass trade. Others, again, like Manuel Castells, argue that it's after 1945 when you get uh, self-reproducing ideologies and computing systems. The teleologies of the concept of globalisation are uh, reasonably obvious, but in fact it goes up, it goes down as well as up. Um, but what's most interesting about it for me is its hybridities. Um, now, an example about which I know little, but which seems to me to have quite a lot of traction, is that of popular music today. Um, with all due respect to that important Irish strand, the dominant uh, popular music is in fact neo-West African, a neo-West African-led hybrid percolated in the southern United States from black African slave music, Spanish guitars, and perhaps with an input of Gaelic, um, you know, Scotch-Irish and Irish music as well. It's a hybrid. It's a global hybrid, which since uh, World War II has become globally dominant. It is hegemonic in terms of popular culture. Now, that seems to me to be very interesting. Too interesting, in fact, to be left to the present and the recent past. So what I'm going to try to do is take that concept back and reshape it. Um, the buzzword here, as some of you may know from reading Sebastian Conrad's recent book on what, what is global history, is connectivity. And people are starting to sneer at connectivity. Connecti you know, and it's very true that... that Connectivity in itself, connections in themselves, do not necessarily mean much. A clove or a piece of Baltic amber in an Egyptian pyramid 5,000 years ago is interesting, but not earth-shattering. Yet, when connectivity does matter, it can matter a lot. It can be literally transformative, not only in changing existing histories, but also in creating new spaces. Connectivity can create new, uncovenanted, unintended, unplanned historical spaces, although they still rely on human agency. There is no strategy. They stretch beyond any particular empire. Um, the Roman world included Ireland. 
The Roman Empire did not. The Chinese world included Japan. The Chinese Empire did not. Um, so connectivity is always faintly out of control. Uh, and those spaces are primarily historic, not geographic. They can disappear as well as appear. Within these spaces, connectivity also creates these hybrid histories that interest me. And literally the classical example is bronze. Um, it so happens that copper and tin deposits tend naturally to occur uh, quite distant from each other. So bronze requires ongoing connectivity between copper source and tin source. Traditionally, I don't know how true this is, uh, Cornish tin is mixed with Cypriot copper to produce Mediterranean Bronze Age culture. Um, and those connectivities, there's an interesting recent example of an of a oxide copper ingot um, being not found but portrayed in a Swedish rock painting um, together with ships with masts, this is three and a half thousand years ago, of a Mediterranean type that did not yet exist in the Baltic. So not only had Cypriot copper made its way in a big 42 kilogram ingot to Scandinavia, but someone had brought it and seen those Mediterranean ships. Now, what this suggests is that connectivity is too big a conceptual package, and we need to break it down relatively simplistically into subtypes. I propose um, a, a simple typology of um, three subtypes. You, you could make it four, but I'll, well, I'll see how I go. The first I call transmission, and that is the occasional or even one-off transfer of something significant over long range. So um, an example would be uh, the that, that wonderfully globalising Stone Age culture called the Malayo-Polynesian, Austronesian speakers, who stretch from East Africa to South America, the hard way, across the Indian Ocean and the Pacific, uh, have at least one contact with the area of Peru, from which they derive the sweet potato, which underwrites their colonisation into non-tropical zones, into temperate zones, which otherwise would have been hard to survive in once the big game had been hunted out, the big birds and the big fish and the big turtles and the big uh, reptiles. And this, of course, enables them to colonise New Zealand. Now, you can't get much more globally significant than that. So um, that's an example of a, a, a one-off transfer, which nevertheless has resonance. My second category is interaction, uh, which, for which a useful proxy is luxury trade. Luxury trade. The volume is not high, um, but the significance can be. Eminent historians from Edward Gibbon to Chris Wickham have warned us against the siren lure of luxury trade and its exoticism. They say it's not really very significant compared to bulk trade. I beg to differ. I mean, for one thing, a lot of luxury trades were actually essences, in essences. They were essential in one sense, if not another. Uh, so pepper flavours a lot of, lot of food. What do you measure? The pepper or the pepper-flavoured food? Musk flavours, uh, um, what's the term, you know, scents a lot of perfume. Uh, one kilogram of musk can still be smelt once diluted 3,000 times. One kilogram of musk transferred over thousands of miles equals three tonnes of perfume. So we can underestimate luxury trade. Next step, next uh, subtype, it's not a stage, is a circulation which, for which the proxy is bulk trade. These things can be quite important and the kinds of transfers they enable are not always good. For example, transmission can transfer syphilis. Smallpox requires interaction. Bubonic plague requires circulation. Trade bulky enough for rats to hide in. So these are the kinds of things that can be transferred by connectivity. But those, those new historic spaces that connectivity creates also need categorising. And here, my approach is very simple indeed, almost risibly so. Um, so the global becomes the subglobal, 
by which I mean uh, two or more continents or subcontinents, the semi-global, which crosses a whole hemisphere, and the pan-global, which is what we think of as globalization today. So um, 19th century globalization, modern globalization that is conventionally understood, thus becomes uh, pan-global circulation. Only one end of two spectra, the tip of an iceberg of historical resonance. Let me stress these aren't stages. You can, you can retreat from circulation to interactivity as well as advance. They're types. Now I turn to divergence in this brief abstract section, which uh, will soon be over. Um, I redefined divergence, famous from um, Kenneth Pomerantz's 2000 book, The Great Divergence, which argues, as most of you will know, that um, uh, Europe's Great Divergence dates not to 10,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago or 1,000 years ago, uh, but to about 1800. It's great divergence from the rest of the planet in terms of both power and wealth. He particularly focuses on China as the, as the number two. I define divergence as a local change which others find either attractive or expensive. That is, there is a local development in biotechnology, by which I mean either domesticated biota or conventional technology. I don't mean genetic engineering in this case, but biotechnology. There is a development which other people get to know about because they live in a globalised space and which they therefore um, get interested in and attempt to acquire and then emulate. Either it's attractive or it's expansive. It gives someone, say, a military advantage, bronze, which requires that competitors within the accessible globalised space acquire it defensively so they can match the diverger, uh, or they are conquered or subjugated by the diverger and become a bronze-using culture anyway. Now, there are countervailing forces. The original diverger uh, frequently is sitting on the largest repositories of the the relevant resources, and sometimes, therefore, divergences kick on. The original diverger, if they're expansive, also has the advantage of cherry-picking best practice from the rest of the global space, so that diverger will kick on. Um, but on the whole, emulation and expansion tend to, tend to overcome the divergence pulse, and eventually divergence becomes convergence within that globalised space, and they're all using bronze at least, not necessarily universally, but majority <clears throat> using bronze. So eventually, divergence reluctantly gives way to convergence within a globalised space. Now let's posit in uh, Afro-Eurasia, the, the world island, um, there are examples outside this, but I don't have space for them here, uh, four sub-global wor worlds as I have defined them. Most are fairly obvious and well-known. One is the nomad steppes, or steppes, uh, let's say steppes, uh, which stretch from Manchuria to the Hungarian plain and were famously home to you know, the Huns and the Mongols. Another is the Indian Ocean world, uh, which incorporates not only continental, subcontinental India, but also Southeast Asia, the east coast of Africa. Another is the Chinese world, which my Korean and Japanese colleagues prefer to call the East Asian world. Uh, and finally, we have an, a kind of paradoxically unfamiliar uh, fourth, West Eurasia. West Eurasia includes Europe, but is not restricted to it. It also includes the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, and it, it actually dominates European history for most of its duration. Uh, Europe is the wrong place in which to study its own history. What connects West Eurasia is um, not just the Great Mediterranean, as Braudel and many others have demonstrated, uh, but also uh, a number of lesser seas, uh, the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, the Black Sea, the North Sea, the Baltic, uh, the Bay of Biscay and the rivers which connect or almost connect them, and the straits which connect them. 
So, you know, the Rhine and the Danube, the Rhine goes down to the Black Sea and the, uh, sorry, the Rhine goes down to the, to the North Sea, the, the Danube goes down to the Black Sea, yet they, they rise within a couple of hundred kilometres of each other in Germany, the, the headwaters are, are close. So it's, a const, it's an amphibian world, but it's interlinked by waterways. And it inherits a succession of uh, empires, all of which claim to be the heirs of their precursors, um, from the uh, Assyrians through the Achaemenid Persians through the Romans, um, and uh, all the way to the Ottomans, who call themselves uh, the sultans of Rum, Rome, uh, via Byzantine Rome. It also shares a curious propensity to monotheism. In some senses, it's the one God world. These four worlds unevenly deliver, over 5,000 years, uh, four great divergences. For a divergence to be great in this context, it has to reach across, though not necessarily wholly include, uh, the entire semi-global system, which is all four worlds. The world's system, plural, to distinguish it from Wattestein. So it has to stretch from the Atlantic to the Pacific. To be great, a divergence has to stretch all the way from coast to coast, overland. The first great divergence in this context is delivered not by constellations of urban cultures, as we're, you know, civilization, uh, but by the steppes. Five and a half thousand years ago, at a place called Botai in Kazakhstan, in Asia, on the eastern side of the Urals, uh, an animal called the horse was domesticated. And this equine divergence or equine revolution genuinely did revolutionize uh, first the semi-global old worlds, and then once it's transferred by Europeans, the new worlds as well. Uh, we tend to take horses for granted, but the fact is a horse is rated at eight manpower. It is eight times the strength of a human male. Um, it increases range three or four times, speed two or three times, and power eight times. Uh, to call it the equine revolution and compare it with the industrial revolution may seem stretching, but in fact it, it, it does have traction. One need not balk it, to use a few equine terms. Um, so, you know, these horses enable the spread of the Indo-European languages. They enable uh, the, the spread of the great nomad confederations, Scythians, uh, Jean-Gnu, uh, Huns, and they enable the great uh, nomadic empires culminating in the Mongol Empire of Chinggis Khan. Uh, they then are transferred over to the Americas and there enable smaller scale, but geographically similar in extent, Native American empires, uh, the Comanche Empire, the Sioux Empire, the Araucanian Empire of the Argentinian Pampas, because horses give a military advantage, which until the invention of the revolver and the repeating rifle, makes them, in certain circumstances, the world's leading warriors. They've got compound bows. First they have chariots, then they have compound bows. They're a problem that sedentary civilizations find very hard to handle. It's a great divergence. The divergers continue to have an advantage in terms of mounted cavalry, uh, but eventually everybody gets horses coast to coast. Some, some breed them better than others, um, but by... They, they, the, the horse gets to Ireland, I think, about 4,000 years ago, 2000 BC, uh, and it gets to China about uh, 1200 BC, gets to India about 1500 BC, and you know, so by about 1200 BC, you can find usable, mi militarily usable horses that, that are probably drawing chariots at that stage, um, mounted cavalry coming about 400 years later, from the Pacific to the Atlantic. Now, if that's not a great divergence, what is? The second great divergence, this is a bit of a slate of hand, a slate of mind merger, is a Sino-Indian supercraft divergence. First in China, you get this super crop called paddy rice developing, which can yield um, two or three times the nutrition per acre of any other cereal. Uh, in the uh, Yangtze River and Pearl River valleys, uh, it... it can feed societies more complex, larger, denser, uh, and uh, more socially and culturally articulated than, than elsewhere. Um, 
as a consequence, these people build up supercrafts, of which the, the flagship of the fleet is silk, uh, widely perceived as the most luxurious of textiles. Uh, coloured silk uh, is seemingly attractive to almost everyone. Um, porcelain later joins the joins the, the Chinese supercrafts and uh, in the Ganges, first in the Indus and then in the Ganges valleys of India, an equivalent development is fine cotton, which takes colour so much better than wool or linen and enables people to um, transfer images or even texts, motifs, rubrics. Um, it can convey anything from individual, individuality to uniformity. And these fine textiles, cotton and uh, silk, later joined by porcelain, are the supercrafts. Now, they're so widely desired that um, they attract people to China and India. And although the Chinese and the Indians are fully capable of maritime expansion and do indulge in it in a couple of spasms, in the Indian case, the Chola Empire around 1000 AD, in the Chinese case, famously, the early Ming voyages of Zheng Ha in the early 15th century, the seven voyages of Zheng Ha, most of the time, the Chinese and Indians don't bother too much. Why do the dirty, dangerous and demeaning work of travelling by sea or land thousands of miles when you have the world's best manufacturers so attractive that they make people come to you? So China and India can globalise by attraction, and they do, by, mm, by about zero AD, let's say. You find silk from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And you find less widespread, but quite widespread, attempts to emulate it in places like Persia and Fatimid Egypt. Sometimes pretty good, but never quite as successful as the real thing. Other people make cotton. They make uh, hybrids of cotton and linen called fustian from Fustat, Old Cairo. Um, quite an industry in 15th century Germany. Um, but they can't quite match silk or cotton. So they have to bloody well go to China and India for it. And because China and India manufacture things better, anything better than anywhere else, no, anything as good as anywhere else, the luxury textiles are better. They don't really want other people's manufacturers. There are a few exceptions. There's quite a market for Iranian heavy silks, for example, in certain periods. But generally what the Chinese want is either um, extractives, not manufacturers, um, slaves, gems, ivory, or bullion. And so you have these complaints from Pliny the Younger in the first century to the governors of the East Indies Company, of the British East Indies, English East Indies Company in, in the 19th century, moaning and whinging about the flow of bullion from Europe to China. And these whines are echoed by the Ottomans as well, and by the Persians, actually. All our gold and silver, because our woman folk want to be dressed in finery, is as though the globe is tilted, sliding away to the east. Our third and fourth, uh, and by the way, that gold and silver becomes a global currency. Now, interestingly, this is a, this is a cultural phenomenon. This is a question of cultural construction. Gold and silver are useless. They are useless, except maybe for filling teeth. You know, they are the most useless of metals. It is a cross-cultural agreement that makes them valuable, that turns them into currency. So this, um, the, the four-world system, the old worlds, plural, is knit not only by a shared desire for silk and cotton, all the more interesting because they're inessential, inessential, but also by a shared currency, gold and silver. Our third and fourth great divergences, which we must um, mesh a bit to make up for lost time, is that it both emanate from West Eurasia, and they include um, the Islamic great Islamic expansion dating from the 7th century and the great 
uh, European expansion, well, West Eurasian expansion, dating from the 15th century. This is modern European expansion as we know it. The similarities between these two divergences should always have been blindingly obvious. These are both monotheists from West Eurasia. Their religions begin not just in the same subglobal world, but also in the same region, the Middle East. Uh, the intertwining of those religions is very clear. They both worship the self-same God. And indeed, Western European track uh, expansion from the 15th century, America's aside, tracks Islamic expansion, follows in its tracks. West Africa for gold and slaves, East Africa for slaves and ivory, India for cottons and pepper, Southeast Asia for other spices, China for silk and porcelain. Everywhere the Europeans go outside the Americas until about 1788. And even then, in Australia, the Chinese are there before them uh, in the form of their agents, trepang traders, who are seeking, seeking sea cucumbers, a luxury food, for the gaping maw of Beijing and Canton, um, have sent out intermediaries which have depleted sea cucumbers on the Japanese coast, the Chinese coast, the South Southeast Asian coast, and by about the 17th century, they arrive in Australia. So we can even include Australia. Everywhere the Europeans go outside the Americas, they find, um, you know, the musing call there before them. Now, this is interesting, it seems to me, because uh, on top of this, the, although the original pulse of uh, Islamic expansion was 7th and 8th centuries, um, and I should also add that the, 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 the terrible twins... Uh, the Muslims and the Christians are um, share methods as well. You know, conversion, conquest, commerce. Um, they also share something interesting. I think in the 15th century, you not only have the beginnings of Western European expansion, which I would date to the conquest of Ceuta in 1415, but you could date to 1492. In fact, I'll argue you can't date it to then. But, um, but you also have a, a kind of Pulse of Islamic expansion. Um, you know, the Timurids, the Ottomans, the Safavids of Iran, Mughal expansion, uh, Omani expansion. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to those briefly in a moment. So you've got a second pulse of Islamic expansion at exactly the same time as your first pulse of Western European expansion and exactly the same subglobal world. Now, the dominant explanation of European expansion and ultimately of European divergence currently is institutions and maybe culture traits on the side. The idea is that uh, Europe develops um, exceptional institutions and exceptional culture traits. An example of institutions might be parliaments, strong law. An example of culture traits might be individualism, scientific curiosity. And it's this that powers... European expansion. The thing is, those, it is argued those emerge in Western Europe. But um, it's not just Western, European, Western Europe that expands. Um, it's also Eastern Europe, the Russians, one of the biggest overland empires on earth, and the Muslim south of West Eurasia, Ottomans and so on. So the Eastern Europeans and the Muslim south doesn't share the institutions or the culture traits but it does share the expansion. What I suggest it also shares, and I haven't left myself a hell of a lot of time for this, is plague. So the second half of my hypothesis is that what triggers um, and to some extent shapes West Eurasian early modern expansion is the Black Death of around 1350. Three new things are emerging about the Black Death. One is that it hits West Eurasia, but not China and India, as was long assumed. The second is that it kills not just 25 or 33%, you know, a quarter or a third of the population, but half the population at one strike. The third is that it's followed up by somewhat less lethal and less widespread, but still pretty bad, secondary strikes something like 15 of them, uh, which keep West Eurasia's population at about half its normal level 
till about 1500. So from 1350 to 1500, West Eurasia has about half its normal population. This is the very period where expansion begins, the plague expansion paradox. Um, my attempt to unravel this paradox is to suggest, along with some other historians, up to a point, that um, what plague does, terrible as it is, it not only halves the population, but also suddenly doubles the per capita share of everything. Bullion, housing, livestock, which it doesn't affect much, prime mill sites, water supplies, wood supplies, fertile land. Suddenly it goes up, it doubles. Trying to explain this to a Cambridge audience, um, I, uh, I suggested, you know, uh, the resilience of populations to get on with life after an initial period of disruption is rather, rather remarkable. It's almost as though, uh, as, imagine if half of us were knocked off, um, our colleagues would dry their eyes and step into our tenured jobs and college houses <laughs> with remarkable rapidity, and that managed to convey... I managed to get over the interpretive divide that way. Um, what's, what, what I, the point I didn't make then, which I've kind of developed since then, was... Um, uh, it's disposable incomes that shoot up even more. And it's, it's, it's kind of basic but easy to overlook, and a lot of economic historians do overlook it, frankly. Um, the, if, if your income... If, you're, uh, if you have an income, say, of £10, and your basic subsistence is £9, you've got £1 discretionary income. If your income goes up 50%, you've only had a 50% increase, and, and subsistence remains the same your discretionary income has gone up to £6. So it's increased sixfold. So discretionary income, which can be spent on the market, goes up disproportionately quickly. And we can actually trace and track this um, in various ways. Uh, So you get a surge in per capita demand up till about um, 1390. Uh, And then, remarkably enough, while the population is still halved, still halved, you start to get signs of an increase in aggregate demand for extractives, what I call extractives, which are things like codfish, sea cucumbers, but not in the European case, codfish, whales, furs, and exotics, which are spices plus the supercrafts, silks, cotton, porcelain. And you start to get signs of a massive increase in West Eurasian demand for these, from about 1390. I'll briefly track it for you. First, and I've come across this relatively recently, is a kind of forgotten Muslim push. The beginnings of early modern West Eurasian expansion, the Ibn Columbus syndrome, stems from the city-states of Aden and Hormuz at the mouths of the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf, which flower in this period, that, that imperial city-states, rather like Venice and Genoa. And there, there, is, there are very strong signs of massively increased activity from Hormuz and from Aden. There also, there's also archaeological evidence of considerable capital inputs and considerable... What you have is a hell of a lot more capital here. It's replacing humans. Um, in East Africa, when demand for ivory goes up, You've also got the beginnings of the transfer of the cultivation of pepper from the Malabar coast of Western India to Southeast Asia, around about 1400. And you've got the establishment of a third great Muslim city-state, mercantile city-state, uh, Entrepot, um, at Malacca, near Singapore, about 1400, which join, joins hands with a Ming, a Ming outreach, a temporary Chinese Ming outreach, which I... I won't go into, but anyway, you've got a mercantile Muslim expansion, not very military, but because, um, for various reasons. You've also got a Russian push out of Europe, across the Urals, led by the city-state of Novgorod, where um, uh, uh, the European demand for furs has increased massively, not just for fine squirrel, in which Novgorod specialises, but also for sable and other luxury furs. What's happening is the, 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 the bourgeois, the, newly, the growing bourgeoisie in Europe are having gowns of prime squirrel, which means that to keep their distance, 
the aristocracy has to have even better furs. So you get an increased demand for sable for, for sort of cultural reasons as well as uh, resource depletion. And so the Novgorodians start trying to push over the, the Urals or at least subject tribes which have, have territories on the other side of the Urals. They make a big push in 1445, but it ultimately fails. And then Moscow takes over Novgorod, takes over its Siberian project, and goes and, and establishes Russian Empire in Siberia, northern Siberia, uh, certainly, certainly by 1499, and arguably by the, by the early 1480s. Now, this is a century before Yermak Timofeyevich crosses the Urals further south and conquers the Khanate of Sibia uh, in the 1570s. It's part of the plague-triggered push in consumption of extractives. In northwestern Europe, you have a similar pattern. We're uh, led by the Basques. Um, cod fishing and whaling intensify from about 1400. Some of this can only be tracked archaeologically because whalers in particular and cod fishers too um, didn't write about their rich fishing grounds for fear, comp- for fear competitors would take them over. But you can, you can track a... Um, and a lot of this is in thesis literature, not, um, not published secondaries. Um, you can track an expansion of cod fishing and whaling from about 1400. Uh, there, there, another way of doing it is looking at the isotopes of, of, of um, cod bones in places like London, and they're coming from further afield. The demand for whales, by the way, is quite high because baleen is the nearest thing to plastic you have in the late Middle Ages, um, and it has uses such as keeping up knights' plumes in battle. Nothing worse than a drooping plume. <laughs> and also for lamp oil. Half your scribes have died in the Black Death, half your craftsmen have died in the Black Death, but if you've got a reliable whale or a lamp, they can work further into the night and they can work in, from their 40s when their eyesight begins to go. You also have a huge uh, mass production of spectacles from this time. Um, uh, Barcelona and Venice export thousands of pairs of spectacles from about 14, documented from about 1406 to the Muslim South. Um, so you're trying to use what you've got, use the labour you've got by giving it better light. Um, in the Mediterranean, it's a, the, 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 the key demands are for sugar, more sugar and more slaves. The Black Death doubles or triples the price of slaves. And suddenly slaving, which is more or less, um, you know, it's, it's, it hasn't disappeared, but it's massively diminished in, in Latin Christendom and in Orthodox Christendom. Um, suddenly it revives. Um, the master slavers are the Genoese, who are also the master sugar traders. It, 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 as yet, the two industries aren't connected. The traditional source of slaves for not just the Muslim South, but for, for Christendom as well, is the sort of Black Sea literal region, um, the Caucasus and uh, the, the Russian steppes and so on, and the Circassians and the, uh, the, the Cuman Turks. Um, and the traditional sources of sugar are um, Egypt, Syria, Cyprus. But the Ottoman Turks from um, 1350, no coincidence, the time of plague, uh, start to rise from just one of 20 bickering emirates in post-Seljuk Anatolia, um, and they, their empire begins to rise, and they start pushing the Genoese out of their traditional slaving and sugar grounds. And the Genoese move west. And first they establish sugar lands in, in Sicily, then in Valencia, then in the Algarve. And finally, um, they persuade their Iberian proxies, beginning with Portugal, to move out into the Atlantic to places like Madeira for new sugar lands, and down the west coast of Africa. It's the Portuguese who fund the uh, it's the Genoese who fund the Portuguese conquest of Ceuta, down the west coast of Africa in pursuit not only of slaves, but also of gold. And, you know, the Portuguese... uh, Sorry, the Genoese are using first the Portuguese as their avatar, and then once Spain discovers silver in the Americas, they jump ship to the Spanish and use the Spanish as their avatar. They've been playing this game for a long time. They did it with the Byzantine Empire for a while too. They tried to do it with the Ottomans, but didn't quite... The marriage didn't work out. So, in sum, you've got... 
Europeans on the way to the Americas in three directions by 1450. Across the Urals, across Siberia, across the North Atlantic after cotton whales, uh, and down the coast of West Africa uh, after slaves and sugarlands into the Mid-Atlantic, which for wind reasons helps get you further south, um, with or without Christopher Columbus, you know, who was Genoese anyway. So plague triggers not only um, a kind of increase in the motives for expansion, but it also creates what I'm calling an expansion kit. Immediately after the plague, there's a very understandable rise in demand for water power. You've, you've lost your labour. Um, let's, let's, let's do some labour saving. So there's a big increase in the use of water power, which economic historians sometimes miss because they don't deflate by population. So they say, well, the, the number of water mills in England's dropped by 25% in the period you're talking about. Yes, but the population's dropped 50%. That means the number of water mills has gone up 50% per capita. So you, the use of water mills changes from grinding grain as the main game uh, to uh, various other things, like fulling cloth um, and, uh, and making paper, but in particular towards um, water-powering uh, larger blast furnaces which produce iron. This is a big increase in European iron production, even in aggregate, let alone per capita. And it's well documented from Sweden to northern Spain uh, via England. Um, so you get a big increase in the availability of iron, which is important for various reasons, agricultural tools to all sorts of things, as you can imagine. A more obviously expensive development is an increase in the use of guns. Guns make it to Europe from China via the Mongols by 1326, but they only flower after the Black Death. That's because they're a labour-saving device. Now, it's not because they're necessarily better, but it takes three months to train an arquebusier, six weeks to train a member of a cannon crew. The, the cannon master takes longer. It takes 10 years to train a longbowman. Five years or 15 years to train, train a, uh, other types of bowmen, depending on whether they are horseback, you know, mounted cavalry or not. So you save training massively. So guns uh, are a labour-saving device. Once they're mounted on walls, um, they're also a... Um, uh, uh, they enable power to be expressed by small numbers. Moving them requires big numbers. But if you mounted them on walls, or indeed ships, you don't need big numbers to move them. So a few men are suddenly much more effective than they used to be. Uh, the plague naturally also um, prioritises the arts of manpowering, as I call it. That is, persuading or coercing other people to fight or work for you. Uh, enslavement, as I've said, grows, but so do other types of uh, tricks and alliances and kind of um, transnational uh, resource pools of labour as well as resources. Um, you get, um, this is a golden age for merchant networks and for uh, culture brokers as well as emerging proto-national states which have to work with the brokerage networks to access transnational pools of labour as well as capital. So basically, after the plague, you've got more capital and more opportunity chasing less skill and less labour, which maximises the arts of manpowering. So the successful states are those which are most ingenious at, um, at manpowering, to cut a long story short. Now... The Ottomans are also good at these arts. They're the master manpowers, actually. You know, they, they have a very modern regular army in the form of the Janissaries, so-called slave soldiers. Uh, they're attracting Christian renegades in large numbers. Uh, they draw not only their labour, but also their leadership from, um, from military slavery. So they have a much larger talent pool than their European rivals. They have things like a very sophisticated tamar tamariot feudal system, which looks feudal, but which absolutely requires um, scribal capacity. The difference between Ottoman feudalism, which is later taken up by the Russians, um, and old-style European feudalism is that you, every time the, the army reports, you have scribes there with a ledger who tick you off. And if you haven't brought the right number of horses and the right number of men, you lose your thief. So it's, it's, a, it's a literate 
feudalism, feudalism dependent on a literate bureaucracy. So, and, and their guns are great, as uh, Agastón and others have shown recently. Um, they produce three times as much money, as, uh, as much gunpowder as the Habsburg Empire. I'm speeding up here. And, uh, and basically in 15, circa 1500, they're the leader of the West Eurasian pack. Um, they're not the only Muslim imperialists of this period. Um, in, in the late 16th century, Morocco emits a long-range uh, expedition of musketeers against the Songhai Empire, which succeeds in conquering it, and they reinforce it with uh, this is long range over, over the Sahara Desert uh, with camel caravans periodically. In fact, the, the story reads very like the Spanish conquest of Mexico, the Moroccan conquest of the Songhai Empire. Um, very like it indeed. And you've got the Omanis, who some of you may know in the 17th century, counterattack against Portugal and start occupying not only its its uh, its Middle Eastern some of its Middle Eastern bases, but also its East African ones, and eventually conquer Zanzibar and turn it European-like into a black slave-run clove plantation. And above all, you've got the Mughals in this very self-same period, uh, and, and they've been kind of incubated in a in with in the in the by the plague constraints of shortage of labour and the need for excellent manpower and the need to adopt artillery and gunnery, although there's lots of debate about that, they're there too. Now, describing these Muslim empires as early modern colonialist imperialists is not necessarily to flatter them, but it does recast a century of Eurocentric scholarship about the origins of early modern expansionism. And it does suggest that contingent and ecological variables are a part of this game. For various reasons, West Eurasia's access to the globe narrows after about 1700, excluding first or hampering first the Muslim South then Southern Europe, Spain, Portugal, and leaving Northern Europe the last man standing, at first including Russia. Then from about 1805, it narrows to Britain, which is the only power remaining with unimpeded access to global resources, to the cherry-picking of global best practice. By this time, half the British fleet is built overseas, in India as well as the Americas. It's not just the New World bonus. And it's at this very point, a little earlier perhaps, that after literally a millennium of trying, or more, 1,500 years of trying, West Eurasia manages to match the Asian supercrafts in cost and quality in a place called Lancashire, around 1800, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Thanks.